so we're in a series right now, a Lenten series. We're, we're in the 40 days of Lent leading up to Easter, where we celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus, the, uh, the whole event and person that the Christian church is founded upon. And in a series of Lent, it's often a time when we focus on our, our humanity, our need of help, our um, inability to cope with life in healthy ways. That's why one of the things that is often practiced in the church is a, a fast of some kinds. So depending on your tradition and your background, it might be a fast from meat during the week. It might be something that you yourself decide upon, like alcohol, fasting from alcohol, or chocolate, or sugar, or desserts, or things like that. Um, whatever it may be, um, that's often what goes along with Lent. And we thought this year for Lent, uh, we wouldn't... We wouldn't um, prioritize giving up something like that just because we've all been giving up so much as it is. Uh, being in a pandemic and trying to be good neighbors and be responsible and uh, help curb the spread of this terrible virus. But we also thought, as I looked at the, the lectionary passages, that we could take a walk with Jesus as he moved through his ministry in the Gospels towards the inevitable cross and see how he proclaimed the kingdom of God. Because one of the things that he would say in proclaiming the kingdom of God is to repent and believe, to change your mind. That's literally in the Greek what that word means when he says it, to change your mind and to believe in something bigger than what you were focused on before. So we've been following Jesus through these passages in the lectionary readings and how he's interacting and spreading this gospel, this new kingdom of God on earth and helping to reorient our minds and our hearts through his thoughts, his words, and his deeds. And this morning, we come to a moment where Jesus is having a conversation with a religious leader, somebody who you would think would have it all together. He's advanced in years. He's high up in religious authority and cultural authority in his community. Uh, he's well-to-do. He's got financial resources. And yet he seeks a midnight meeting with Jesus in order to ask him more questions. Why are you so different? What is it about the way that you speak and live with the authority that you have? Where does this come from? And what can I do to understand it more? And so here we find a piece of that conversation. And we're going to jump into this idea that the title of the sermon is called An Illuminated Life and a Copper Serpent. I couldn't think of a better title uh, because it's such a strange reference that Jesus gives here. But we're going to talk about how Jesus in this passage, he interrupts and turns on its head this idea that is so prominent in religion. And that's that you earn your favor and your way with God, that it's an earned thing, and that what you need to do is kind of like put, a, put away these pieces of yourself, um, these shameful parts of you, and just become this really righteously perfect person, and then God will accept you. And in this conversation, we see Jesus uh, turning that idea on its head and twisting it and, and really disintegrating it and coming up with something uh, different in its place. So I want to talk about that this morning. I want to talk about how he presents this idea of salvation through him 
And then also this idea that, that competes with it, that's really here and present in this scripture and so many others, and this idea of shame and how shame uh, can, can chain us down. Like we talked about and we sang about in the song earlier that the, the name of Jesus can break chains. And one of the chains that holds us back from being able to believe that we could be saved, that we could be whole, that we could be accepted and loved by a perfect divine God is shame. And so that's what we're going to get into as we look at this passage as well. Before we do that, I'd like to pray for us for a moment. So, Lord, thank you for this morning. Uh, thank you for the beautiful weather. Thank you that we are getting vaccines, that people are getting uh, uh, safer, and that the world is uh, starting to be able to breathe again in some ways. Thank you that we're together. There's people here with us in person and uh, through uh, the, the Internet and Facebook and for everyone helping with that. I pray this morning that you would give us an openness in our heart and our spirit, that you would allow us just for a moment to let our guard down, to, uh, to put away all of our rationalizing and make trying to make sense of things and just be open to what we might hear from the living God. In your name we pray, amen. Uh, I... I know I don't look it, but I'm getting older. Uh, there, there, there's things about me that don't work the way uh, they used to. And I was reminded of that last week when I was in the kitchen and I went to, to just bend down like this with my knees and my right knee just went all the way out and I just fell on the floor. And and I was thinking about that. You know, I was like, okay, why did that happen? Okay, I did this workout, and I've been working outside on this shed, and yep, that was it. And, and then I thought about this memory a little bit later. I thought about this memory when I was 19 years old, and I was in the college gym at Western Michigan University. Anybody? No, I didn't think so. Uh, it's a pretty big school, 30,000, about 30,000 people. But Michigan, nobody here is probably. Anyway, I was in the gym. I was with my friends. And we had just played basketball and lifted weights and stuff after drinking the night before. You know, 19-year-old life is just easy. Uh, and, and there's these sets of stairs, these huge, long sets of stairs. And I had thought about it a lot of times, and today was the day. I said, you know what? You know what, Chris? You know what, Alvin? I'm going to jump down all those stairs. It was a lot of stairs, like 15, and they were real spread out. And there was no reason Nobody had dared me to. No, there was no girls to impress. Not that any girl would be impressed by that. But in my 19-year-old mind, they probably would have been. And so I did it. I jumped all the way down these stairs, and I made it. Cleared all the stairs, hit the ground, felt awesome, went about my day. Yeah, my, my foot, I probably had like a fracture or something because my foot hurt for like three months after that. Um, but I'll never know uh, unless... One day I go to the doctor and they start x-raying my right leg, which will probably have to happen sooner than later, and they might see some damage. Uh, but my point is, I'm getting older, and I'm starting to feel it. I'm feeling the shame of getting older, the limitations. That's what, a lot of what I mean when I use the word shame. Like my limitations, and as well as that, in addition to that, 
the sense that other people are aware of my limitations, of what I am incapable of doing, even though I wish that I could, and feeling exposed and vulnerable and weak. When I think about that, I think about uh, this passage, and I think about the fear of shame, the fear of being able to acknowledge that I am frail, that I am weak, that I am in need of help, and I cannot do what I would like to be able to do. I cannot seem to live the way that I want to be able to live, and I don't want other people to see it. I don't want them to be able to look at me, and I feel the pain of that shame. And I wonder how many problems in the world wouldn't exist if we weren't so prone as human beings to rage against this shame that we have, to do any and everything except for admit that we need help, that we're limited, that we're frail, that we don't have it figured out. And we have good reasons. We have good reasons from trusting people early on to last week that it's not okay to show our shame. And yet what happens here in this passage through some strange means is Jesus confronts this wealthy religious leader who seemingly has it all together with his shame and our shame. And he offers help. So let's take a look here back at this passage. The first couple of verses start uh, in verse 14 and 15, and, and it says this. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So this man, Nicodemus, very familiar with the scriptures, and he's hearing this idea. So the idea that he hears here is that Jesus, calling himself the Son of Man, says, if you believe in him, his person, anyone, anyone would have eternal life, life everlasting. And he pairs it, that, that's, that's a crazy enough idea as it is right there, then he pairs it with this strange little story from a book, the book of Numbers. How many of you have done Bible studies on the book of Numbers? Yeah, that's what I thought. No, no hands going up there, except for, of course, Christian. I, I could definitely see that coming, right? Numbers is this little book tucked away in the first five books of the Bible called the Torah. It plays second fiddle, third fiddle to Exodus and Deuteronomy. Um, but in, in this book, there's a story that Jesus is referencing here when he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And I'm going to tell you this story. I'm going to read a verse from it. And I'm even going to read it in the New King James Version, this verse, just to make it even better. So here's the deal. People are in the desert, the Israelites. Moses is leading them. Moses is being led by God. They're trying to get to this place called the Promised Land. And it's at one of these points where they're fed up. God's been feeding them this stuff called manna. It's kind of like, like uh, frosted flakes, like off-brand frosted flakes kind of thing. 
and then and quail also, which I think that's a pretty good deal. Like you get both of those things. But the people start grumbling and complaining about both the food and the drink. They start complaining to Moses. The text says this. As they complained, God sent fiery serpents to bite them. Then the people, uh, the people then come to Moses and they say, we, we believe God sent these snakes to punish us for our grumbling and complaining. Moses, will you talk to God and ask God to help us? And Moses goes, and um, so God responds to Moses and says, uh, I'm, he doesn't say he's going to take away the snakes, but he says he's going to help, and here's how he's going to help. Moses, make a, a statue of a serpent and put it up on a pole, and if people look at the serpent, then they'll be healed if they've been bitten. This is weird. I mean, there's so many reasons this is weird. One of the reasons, if you're Jewish, that it would be really weird is because there's one of, the, there's one of these uh, of just ten commandments, right? And, and, and one of the very first parts of those ten commandments is not to make idols, right? And I, we remember this episode with the same Israelites about making this big golden calf, and that, that didn't go well for them. So why is this happening let, here's, here's one of the verses here in Numbers 21. Uh, this is, this is the, what we have God speaking to Moses. It says, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he seeth it, shall live. Now, I have a lot of ideas about this passage that I'm not going to share this morning. And if you want to talk to me about them some other time, you can. But I want you to know enough about it to know what I think Jesus is using it for. And I'm taking the time to explain it right now because it's going to come back as we go, come through this passage in a multitude of ways. I actually think it is pure religious genius that Jesus is using in bringing up this passage. It perplexed me uh, all week long as I was thinking through this passage and reading and praying over it and saying, is this you? Does this have anything to do with you, God? In Numbers 21, this story, is this really anything about God? And here's what I see. That when the people asked to be delivered from the thing that was ailing them, God did not take away the snakes. He did not take away the poison. But he gave them something to trust in to restore them. And Jesus is saying, this is me, Nicodemus. I am not going to take away the Roman oppressors. I'm not going to take away your shame of living in a world being limited and being in control of so little. This is part of your humanity. But what I am going to give you is something to save you, to restore you, something to believe in. Jesus is saying very clearly to Nicodemus, Nicodemus you are dying in your perfect religious life. You are dying, and I am offering you life. I, um, last, uh, last year, in like March or April, when everything kind of shut down, I was spending all this time in my art studio 
and having all these Zoom calls and all this kind of stuff. And I started feeling really unwell, and I thought it was because of the screen time. So I started looking up those blue glasses. Anybody look those up? How many people bought, bought any of those, those blue glasses? So, yeah, yeah so I looked, I looked them up. I spent a lot of time looking at them, and what I found is that they were like a kind of a hoax. And so I didn't, I didn't buy them, that they didn't really actually do anything. And um, I still kept feeling really bad. And in fact, one time I laid down in my studio and I just fell asleep on the floor because I felt so bad. Turns out that was a really bad move because I got up and the next day I went over and I looked at, my, I, at all my paints and my um, acrylic, liquid acrylic inks. And I'd had a big bottle of white that the lid was off on and the fumes were just coming out into the room. And I was unaware and it was making me sick. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to get through to Nicodemus. You are unwell. You don't know the source of it. You've got all these religious answers, and yet you're still unwell. You cannot save yourself. You need me to do it. He goes on in verse 16. He says this, For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then he makes clear the, the purpose of this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. In this passage, it's obviously a famous passage, right? John 3.16. It's such a beautiful line, that's why. For God so loved the world, not hated, not had wrath towards, not was disgusted with, but for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes would not perish but have eternal life. And then just for clarity, Verse 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. And then verse, verse 18, I don't, like, I don't like this verse, but at the same time, it makes so much sense for my own life. It says, for whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed. Because how can somebody who's sick and dying be okay without the help that Jesus is extending. And here's what I know in my life, in my life, that no matter what I was trying or what I wanted to do about it, that the only thing that has saved me is Jesus. The only source of life that I have felt anything akin to unconditional acceptance, to be seen in all of my shame and my shortcomings, is Jesus. See, when, when, I, when I think about this verse, I think about it like this. Jesus is trying to get through to Nicodemus and to any readers of this gospel through John. 
there's nobody else coming for you. There's nobody else trying to come for you, trying to save you. I'm it. Everything else you got to try to do on your own. So Nicodemus is listening. He's thinking about the Sanhedrin, the, 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 the higher up uh, Jewish religious organization, the Jews himself. He's thinking, so you're saying all of this stuff, all of this stuff, none of it is going to save me. He comes to Jesus, he goes, I know you're from God earlier. He says, I know you're from God. Nobody could do the things you do if they weren't from God. Help me understand this. And he, he hears the only thing, he hears something so beautiful and so amazing, but also within it is the only thing he and I and maybe you don't ever want to do. And that's allow ourselves to be exposed, to have the shame within us be seen for what it is, that we are unable to do the things for ourselves that we would like to do, to, to admit that freely. Nicodemus had his religious life. He had um, his intelligence, his knowledge of the scriptures, his wealth, his status, probably a, a big family. And those things he found were able to protect him from a large amount of shame, of limitations. And we do the same things. And it's because shame is painful and it's lonely. Those, those stories that shape us in our childhood, where we reached out for help, for emotional help, physical help, and we were mocked, we were made to feel little, we were passive-aggressively told that there's something wrong with us for needing help. So we build systems, we build rationalizations to protect us from this knowledge that we, when it's all said and done, can be seen as limited, needy people. And we resent that. Here's the thing. The religion of Christianity can be used in many ways and is to deal with shame in different, in different types of ways. But here's what this author, Donald Capps, has to say about shame in the Christian religion. He says this, because in shame we experience the pain of self-exposure and the core of Christian identity is to be exposed before God. The point of Christian identity is not to put our shameful self behind us, but to allow it to be exposed again and again to God. It's painful, he says. It's painful, this self-exposure, this shame. But along with that, the core of the Christian identity is to be exposed before God. And so then I think about these next couple of verses here. Uh, starting uh, in, uh, what verse is that? Uh, got cut off, I think it's 19. Where Jesus says, after he explains 
his available salvation. He says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil or bad or wicked. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Exposure to be seen. Now it says in here, I'm I'm put off by the language of loving evil deeds because I'm like, who really loves evil deeds? So I have have a hard time with that. And I looked up the word evil Uh, I don't know why it's translated evil here. Other places it's translated bad and um, other things like that. So I'm not going to, I don't want to try to go into right now, like loving evil deeds or why would anybody do that? Um, But I do know that when we're in the dark, hiding our shame, we're prone to selfishness, to greed, to harmful actions to ourselves and to others. And we try to deal with this shame every way but to let it be exposed because having it exposed is the most painful thing. We all know it. We all have those experiences. So we try to convince ourselves it's not important. This is a really positive one in our culture. Yes, these things happen to me or I'm not good at this or that or, you know, these kind of things, but I'm really rich I'm really successful, I'm really good looking, I'm really good at math, I have a really good job, I have a really big family, so those things aren't important. They're there, but they're not important. We try to compartmentalize it. Makes total sense, makes total sense. I do that all the time. Or sometimes we try to renounce the shameful parts of ourselves. Like this is, this was me, but it's no longer me. I renounce this, it's not a part of my life anymore. (laughs) I'm gonna hum this away, and it's just not there. It's not true anymore. This is uh, used oftentimes through a religious conversion or some other type of secular conversion of sorts where we try to renounce the shame. Right? We try to say, this, is, this was a part of me, but I just completely reject it. And the third way, so there's ignoring, uh, renouncing, and then the third way is trying to disassociate, disassociate ourselves from it, not sodiate, uh, not soda. Uh, but we try to make something that induces shame shameless. A popular easy example of this is sex. Our culture is determined to try to, in popular culture anyway, to make sex a shameless, a shameless thing, something without shame, something that is inherently a very shameful thing, to be that vulnerable and exposed with another person, try to make it something that no longer contains shame. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work for anyone, ever. It's just a further compartmentalizing of ourselves, a further way of rejecting important parts of who we are. And the solution that Jesus puts forth here in this last part of the passage about being in the light, the the less popular part of this passage He gives the cure and says, it's the light to be fully seen. I mean, when I think about that story from Numbers, I'm like, did anybody not look at this serpent and not be healed? Like, what would be the point of that? Like, why is there, what's the deal here? So whoever looked at the serpent was saved. I don't, I don't get it. 
But when we talk about light and dark and being exposed before God, like letting somebody see all these things I've worked so hard to manage and compartmentalize and convince myself these things aren't true of me. That makes sense to me. That makes sense where, where evil could fester, where bad things could fester within me. That makes sense to me why a man in charge of a government somewhere would wipe out a whole people group because he's running from his own shame. That makes sense. So a man in religious circles became extremely famous. We call him St. Augustine. He wrote a book called Confessions. And in it, he talks a lot about shame. The language of shame isn't necessarily explicitly there. And that's one thing that the Western Christian church hasn't had good language for, shame. We know how to talk about guilt, doing something wrong and feeling bad about it. But this idea of shame, of, of exposure of our, our weaknesses, not so much. But St. Augustine has uh, many important things to say in this book. I'm going to read one quote about this exposure and how it's related to what Jesus is talking about here. He says, Lord, before whose eyes the abyss of man's conscience lies naked, what thing within me could be hidden from you, even if I would not confess it to you? I would be hiding you from myself, not myself from you. But now, since my groans bear witness that I am a thing displeasing to myself, you shine forth and you are pleasing to me. And you are loved and longed for so that I may feel shame for myself and choose you. By the way, I love that your kids are here right now. It makes me really happy, just so you know. They can cry and do whatever they want to do as loud as they want to do. Amber and Matt. Did you hear what St. Augustine said? He said his shame was not keeping God from seeing him, but actually the inverse. That it was when he embraced the painful stepping into the light, his pupils having to dilate after being in the dark and feeling that pain in his head and his heart of stepping into the light, he began to be able to see God because he himself was no longer compartmentalizing his need, his shame. In, in the verses here, Jesus says in, the, in this last verse that we were looking at, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Here's how I want us to spend our time closing around this, this um, Think about this idea. I said we were going to come back to that snake, right? So when the, when the Israelites looked up at this snake and Moses held it up, there, there is an 
a, a type of magic associated with this type of healing in the ancient world called sympathetic magic. And what you're probably most familiar with in popular culture and movies and stuff is like voodoo. So if you want to affect a person, you create a, a doll of them. If you want to affect, affect them or you create a doll of whatever it is, like if you want a plant to do well even or something like that. And then you do things to that thing. And so this was the idea. The snake was what was harming the people. And so Moses made this snake. And so when the people looked on the snake, uh, then they were made well. And this is what I think is so ingenious that Jesus mentions this to Nicodemus. Because Nicodemus was fully aware of this story. He was fully aware of the rabbinic commentaries that said, no, it wasn't the snake they were actually supposed to look at. They were supposed to look past the snake as they looked up and look to see God because they were so uncomfortable with this passage in Scripture. But Jesus says that the Son of Man, in the first verse that we read in verse 14, must be lifted up on a cross, right? And that we are to believe in him. We are to look to him. And in the same way that it was the snake that ailed the Israelites, when we look to the man on the cross to see and believe, to be healed from what ails us, what do we see? The son of man, a man full of weakness and shame. The very thing we want to run from and hide that God himself embraces fully. You don't have to hide from it. You can be seen. You can be healed. You can be whole. This to me today, right now, is what eternal life means. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, this morning. I feel uh, your presence in this place I have all morning. Don't always feel that. And I don't know if you're up to something. I don't know if uh, somebody needs something in particular this morning. But I pray they would ask for it if they do. I pray that they would have the courage to work through the shame and receive what you have for them. Amen.